Well, good morning. You can grab your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 6. That's where we're headed this morning, Romans chapter 6. And as you're getting yourself situated there, I I wanted to um, ask you a quick question. I wonder if you're familiar with the phrase, reality check. Most of us at one point in our lives have either heard this phrase used towards us or we've used this phrase towards someone else. Usually this phrase, reality check, carries with it negative connotations. Um, For example, uh, you know, I heard at one point in my life, Ian, you are 5'10 and you cannot jump. You are not going to the NBA and uh, you need a reality check. Uh, You may have your own statement that you can use there and be reminded of when somebody spoke to you and said, you need a reality check. You see, we use it oftentimes to smash people's hopes and dreams. We use it to bring them back from fantasy land and to anchor them in reality, in what's actually true and reasonable and right. You see, as Christians, I think we need to redeem this phrase And we need to inject it with a more positive, biblical perspective. And here's here's why I say that. You see, instead of using it to tell people what they can't do, we as Christians need to use it to remind believers of what they can do. Specifically, in their fight against sin. You see, the failure in overcoming sin in many of our lives is often a result of the failure to understand our new gospel reality. Our relationship, you see, to sin changes because of our relationship to Christ. And in this biblical reality check, we need to understand it's not just, by the way, about what we can do because of our relationship to Christ but what we will do if we are truly in Christ. You see, as we looked last week, Paul has reminded us that we have been, as believers, transferred from being in Adam under the rule and reign of sin to being now in Christ, our new representative. That means that who we were in Adam is no longer who we are. But the truth is, it doesn't always feel like this. And if we're honest with ourselves, Sometimes it doesn't even look like this. But those who understand the free gift of abundant grace, this gift that Paul has been speaking of in Romans chapter 5, if we understand this, we must have a different view of ourselves and our relationship to sin. And we must realize that victory over sin is not just possible or probable, according to the Scriptures, it is for the believer inevitable. Not perfectly, but increasingly. And the point of this section of God's Word in Romans chapter 6, in fact, this entire chapter, is how we fight sin and how we gain victory over it in our lives, practically speaking, day by day. It speaks to how unity in Jesus gives us victory over sin. Keep that perspective in mind now as we read through the text. We're going to read and look at verses 1 through 10, and then next week we're going to look at verse 11 through 14 to see how we can put this into practice in some very specific ways. 
Let's read it together. It says this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. The continual emphasis in our passage is this concept of union with Christ, that we are united to Him in a a unique and supernatural sense. And this union with Christ is the very foundation for why we have victory over sin and how we get more victory over sin every day of our lives. Again, not perfect victory in this life, but there is real, substantial, increasing victory that is inevitable for the believer in Jesus Christ. So, I want to look at this and break it down with two points, two thoughts. First is this, victory over sin is inevitable because of the reality of our participation in Christ. This is our gospel reality, that we have actually participated in Christ. Now, notice how this begins in verse 1. It begins with a a questioner. Really, they're not asking a question. This is more of an accusation. And we've had this question before in chapter 3. It's the hypothetical Jew. It's the Jew who believes that somehow the law factors into your ability to earn your justification, to be right with God. And Paul has shredded that idea. And before, he didn't really answer it. He simply declared, that's a ridiculous notion. Here, he goes into detail, and he wants to actually elaborate and explain why this idea is ludicrous. What shall we say then? Here's the question or accusation. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You see that the sense of what this individual is indicating? If God's grace is so abundant and it's free, there's nothing you can do to earn it, then why don't we just keep sinning our brains out so that God's grace can continue to increase? It's a justification for sin. It's an excuse to continue to sin. I wonder if we can't resonate with this idea. If God's grace is what Paul has explained it is, then then consider the implications of that. And this, by the way, is a, a logical question that many people ask. 
You see, they were implying that Paul's gospel of free grace actually encourages lawlessness, which, by the way, is the simplest definition of sin. Sin is lawlessness, according to 1 John. There's a scene in the movie Groundhog Day, a Bill Murray classic. If you haven't seen the movie, spoiler alert, Bill Murray is reliving the same day over and over again, and there's nothing he can do to get out of the cycle. He goes to bed, he wakes up, it's the same day over and over again. And there's this one scene where he's sitting down with a couple guys, and he's explaining to them, to them his situation, and he asks them this question, if you knew that you could do anything in this life and none of it mattered, what would you do? And in an instant, they all clue in that they can do whatever they want. And you want to know what their response is? Their response is to go out and do everything that they're not allowed to do. They were told all the time, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. But now we know there's no consequences. We can do whatever we want. We can break the law. We can indulge ourselves in sin. This is the mentality that this accuser, this questioner, believes Paul will evoke in the hearts of people if they hear about this free gift of God's grace. They believe it puts a premium on sin because it promises the sinner the best of both worlds. They can indulge in sin without any fear of forfeiting life in the next realm. By the way, this is the same accusation that was leveled at Martin Luther. Martin Luther had been studying the original texts, and he had come to the conclusion as he was once a part of the Catholic Church, he, he believed that the Scriptures taught, and he accurately believed this, that justification was only by grace alone through faith alone. And he believed it was taught so clearly in Scripture that at one point, the Catholic Church came alongside to him and said, listen, listen, listen Martin Luther, if you continue to teach this uh, idea, then people are going to think that they don't have to do anything to get into heaven. In fact, that's still the case today. If you speak to a Catholic, they're going to say something to the effect of, no, grace, grace is absolutely necessary, but so too are our works. You see, grace plus works equals justification. Now, let's just pause here and reflect on a very practical point of application. It is very clear that Paul did preach an astounding gospel of grace. And he clearly preached a gospel of grace, not works. He made this abundantly clear. Otherwise, this objection would have never been raised. And by the way, we have every reason to believe that this was a common objection raised against Paul as he preached in the Jewish synagogues. To summarize uh, John's thought, to paraphrase him, he says, he says this, if, if we proclaim God, Paul's gospel the way Paul did, with its emphasis on the freeness of grace and the impossibility of self-salvation, we ourselves are going to hear this very same accusation. In other words, if you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to enough people and you preach it the way Paul does, you're going to be charged with this idea that this grace is going to encourage people to keep on sinning. And by the way, if that happens, just recognize this, you're in good company. You're in the company of Martin Luther. You're in the company of the Apostle Paul. And better yet, you're in the company of Jesus Christ himself. 
who infuriated the Pharisees of, of his day and who declared to all, all who believed they had to work their way into God's good grace, work their way into God's presence. He declared to them, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, heaped up with all of these burdens and expectations of how you believe you can get yourself into heaven, how you can save yourself with your own efforts. He said, come to me and I will give you rest. I wonder, though, if we are are not also at times in our lives a little bit guilty of embracing this kind of idea, how many times in our lives have we looked at sin and thought these very words, you know what, grace will cover this. I I can indulge myself just this one time because grace is going to cover it. I'm I'm okay. You want to know what Paul's response to that is? Look at verse 2. By no means. May it never be. And the exclamation point on there demonstrates the the seriousness and the, the intensity of how Paul expects us to understand God's grace. May it never be. Look, reality check. If you believe and are saved, good works will inevitably be the fruit of your life because you are born again. You have been given new life. And we aren't just observers of Christ, we are actually participants in Christ, which makes victory over sin absolutely inevitable. You see, our participation in Christ requires two things. First, I want you to see this. It requires our needed knowledge. He wants to remove ignorance and infuse knowledge and understanding into us. I just want you to take note of this. If you're marking up your Bibles or taking notes, just uh, understand this. For Paul, what the believer understands is absolutely critical to their spiritual formation and transformation. Paul was convinced that Christian living depends upon Christian learning. That duty follows doctrine. That behavior follows belief. Therefore, it is natural that he attempts to increase our knowledge. And for many of us, this is what is absolutely required. By the way, when you come to the Word of God, this is how you should come. You should be asking God to increase your knowledge of Him. You should be praying, God, I want to grow in knowledge and understanding of the truth of your word, of the truth of the gospel, of the truth of all that you are. Listen, not knowledge that puffs up, knowledge that builds up. The key word in verses 3 through 10 is this word right here. Listen, know. Did you notice it in verse 3 there? Do you not know? Look at verse 6. We know. Look at verse 9. We know. Above all, Paul wants us to know or understand the nature of our union with Christ. And here's what he says first to us. Here's what that union means for us. If you know you are united to Christ, look at verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ's death were baptized into His death? Now, 
lest I discourage myself out of the pulpit and discourage you out of the pew, or maybe I can um, make that illustration a little more relevant to you today, lest I discourage myself off of your screen and discourage you off of your sofa. Sorry, COVID jokes are terrible. Here's what he's not saying. He doesn't say that dying to sin makes sinning impossible. It's not what he says. I mean, consider for a second 1 John 1.8. 1 John 1.8 says this, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, there, John is speaking specifically to believers. Just cross-reference chapter 5. Verse 13, it is impossible for a Christian to say we don't have any sin. If we say that, the truth of God is not in us. So here, what we need to understand is that Paul is not saying that we are never going to have a bad day. He's not saying that we're, we're never going to even have a bad week, a month, a year, a period of time where we continue to struggle with sin. Listen, he's not even saying that there won't be something in our life long term that we are going to have to fight against, maybe even to the day we die. He's not saying that. In fact, let me, let me encourage some of you because some of you are in this place where you're like, I don't understand why I'm continuing to struggle with sin. I don't understand why this battle is so hard. I don't understand why I can't get a, a full grip of this area of my life. I thought, I thought when I became a Christian that everything was going to get easier. I, I thought that, that the sin was going to disappear. I, I prayed about this. I'm reading my Bible. I mean, I, I'm doing the right things. Why is this sin still a struggle for me? See, if that's your mentality, and I think a lot of us get stuck in this place, I think it's evidence that we've actually viewed the Christian life the wrong way, and we actually view the, the Christian spiritual disciplines the wrong way. I think sometimes we, we treat our spiritual disciplines as if they're kind of a, a, a silver bullet, a magic pill that we can take that's just going to instantly eradicate all of our desires for sin and instantly eradicate all of our struggles with sin. That's simply not true. I want to remind you of the words of the Apostle Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 12. Some of us, this is so needed in our souls right now because sometimes we feel like Paul. You know, Paul had a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan, and we don't exactly know what that was, but I think we can relate to the sense of Paul pleading with the Lord. Three times he said, I pleaded with the Lord, take this away, take this away, take this away. I mean, how often have we prayed that kind of a prayer when it comes to our, our sin and our struggles uh, against sin? And listen to the answer that's given to him in verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Listen, the constant struggle with sin in this life is a perpetual reminder of your weakness and mine. 
It's a perpetual reminder of how desperately we need Jesus Christ, of how desperately we need the power of Christ, of how, how insufficient we are in and of ourselves, but of the power that is afforded to us, the strength that comes to abiding in Christ and leaning into the union that we have been given with Him. Sometimes God doesn't take away our struggle with sin because He's using that struggle to train us in His grace. Don't grow weary or faint-hearted, loved ones. Don't throw in the towel. I love, I love what the author of Hebrews says in relation to our sin. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What he is saying here, this is key, he is saying that this whole pattern of life that keeps you under sin's dominion and doesn't keep uh, you repenting regularly and walking with Jesus in intimacy and in fellowship, he says that's not possible. The believer will make progress. Victory over sin is inevitable. We need this knowledge. We need to believe what the Scriptures say about this. Because right belief inevitably leads to right behavior. But what he does here, secondly, is he grounds this in our necessary death. And here is where he really gets into this idea of union with Christ. Here's where he drills down, anchors us. And to help us uh, grasp this union with Christ, he actually employs a very powerful metaphor, the metaphor of baptism. He says in verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For Paul, a believer's baptism symbolizes incredible realities. Baptism is a picture, we know this, water baptism is a picture of what happened to us when we met Jesus. The overall emphasis, by the way, of these verses, again, just keep this in mind, is upon the profound identity or union that we have with Christ. That's what he's going to say again in verse 5. But you see, baptism, this concept and this, this, this metaphor, it bears with it this idea of identification, of union. And the Bible employs lots of metaphors in the Scripture to help us understand this concept of union. Think about John 15, I am the true vine and you are the branches. Or think about the metaphor of, of Jesus being the head and we being the body. Or even the very metaphor of marriage that's used, bride and groom, symbolizing union, oneness. But here baptism expresses a unique, in a unique way our identity with Christ. Some people look at this, and a lot of people debate whether or not this is speaking of spirit baptism, which is the baptism we all undergo at our conversion. We're baptized with the Spirit. We are brought into the family of God. Or whether or not this is speaking of water baptism. Um, I, I happen to think it's both. I, I think in the mind of Paul, there really was no separation, and to, especially to the early church, there, there wasn't this idea of an unbaptized believer. The reality was, the moment somebody was saved, they started looking around for water. And so, as he writes to the Christians, 
It's inevitable that, that in their mind, when they think of baptism, they're going to think about their water baptism, but beyond that, they're thinking about what that baptism points to, the reality of that union in connection with Christ. You see, that's what he's trying to do. So he's calling you, in a sense, to remember your baptism, but to remember what it means for you and what it says about you. He's using it to give you a reality check this morning. And baptism here is used not to show how we are saved, as some people kind of wrongly look at this text and try to understand it, but listen, but that we are saved. We talk about baptism around here as being an outward symbol of an inward reality. It symbolizes beautiful realities of being in in union with Christ, and he, he refers to them here as the death, the burial, and the resurrection, the package deal, all of what Christ accomplished on the cross. It's mentioned here not to show how we're buried with Christ, but that we were buried with Christ. It's just important to to make clear that baptism doesn't save you. It's not the silver bullet to get you saved. It's a response to what the gospel has done, and it's, by the way, uh, commanded, which is why believers were looking around for water. If you are a believer and you haven't been baptized, in one sense, that's a problem. I'm incredibly thankful that there are a number of people in our church right now who are pursuing baptism, and we're looking forward to holding a baptism service in the very near future. And I just, I want to encourage you, if, if you have committed your life to Christ, if you have surrendered, if you believe the, upon the gospel and the free gift of God's grace, and you haven't yet been baptized, we'd invite you to come and talk to us. This is an important step, a declaration of what has happened to you, that you went under the waters, that you die, by the way, which is what happens if somebody is to hold you under the water, you will die. In Christ, we died. We were buried and we have been resurrected. Faith is assumed to lead to baptism, and baptism assumes faith for its validity. You see, baptism is the evidence of your faith, not the means of your faith. And Paul is showing here the connection between Christ and the believer. You're not just an observer of Christ's death, Paul says, but you are actually supernaturally, spiritually a participant in Christ's death. In other words, if somebody asks you to share your testimony, you can start all the way back at the cross. You can say something like this, my testimony begins 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross where I was crucified with Christ. You see, death marks the end of life. That's what Paul is saying to us. It marks the end of a life that we once lived. It marks the end of our life in Adam. That life is dead and gone, never to be resurrected again. When Christ died, you died. Who you were is over. We still, listen, we still struggle with sin, but the old man, that old person who loves sin, who loved all of those things that we would indulge in that were not pleasing to God, that did not bring honor and glory to Him, those things died. Now, as a result, we we hate sin, we confess sin, we repent of sin, and we flee sin, all because in Christ we have died to sin. Our union with Christ makes victory over sin inevitable. And that is all because of the reality of our participation in Christ. But secondly, Paul wants to draw our attention to the reality of our power in Christ. 
And in verse 5 to 10, really, he elaborates on on this concept of being in union with Christ. He's showing us the, the overwhelming power of the gospel because of this union we have with Christ. And verse 5 grabs a hold of this concept of union, talking not only about the death of Christ and our death in Him, but we are also certainly to be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And Paul's hope for you is to, to show you the newness of life that comes from the resurrection power of Jesus. He looks in this section at the depths of our, our slavery to sin. He's going to do this a little later in chapter 6 as well. But he wants here, he wants to point out for us the certainty, the absolute certainty of our freedom and the power that we have in Christ. In this newness of life that reveals the reality of the power of Christ in us. And this newness of life provides us with two things in particular. First is our new authority our new authority. Verses 5 through 7 really lay this out. Look at verse 6. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. In other words, it might be rendered powerless so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. This points to the old authority that sin had over our lives. I want you to notice that the future tense, by the way, in verse 5, that we're, we're dead to sin, but we will also live with Him. He's, he's saying something very important here, that the power we have in this life is grounded in the power of His resurrection. Listen, we will one day, we know this according to the Scriptures, we will one day physically be resurrected to a new body that will last forever for all eternity. But he wants us to to keep that in mind and realize that that power that's going to raise us from the dead, the power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead, is actually available to us right here and right now. We are benefiting right now, this moment, from the power of the resurrection. Our union with Christ is the only source of our death to sin. It is a breaking of an old authority in our lives. See, death to sin is not grounded in your ability to obey the law or to make yourself better. It only comes through this union with Christ. Our our old man, as Paul says, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. What he's communicating here is that we are no longer enslaved to sin. It no longer has that authority over our lives. But you see, we need to remember that apart from Christ, that's exactly the power that sin had over us. It it had authority and rule over us. We were enslaved. Sin is being described here as a power. It enters the world through Adam and it exercises its rule over all people. It reigns in death. It enslaves everybody under its power and authority. You see, before being joined to Christ, when I resisted sin, I was like a prisoner who tries to escape over a prison wall before the sentence has been paid. And the jailer, sin in this case, kept grabbing my legs and dragging me back and throwing me back into the cell and yelling at me, the penalty has not been paid. But you see, when a Christian resists sin, 
He's like a prisoner who is released through the prison gate after serving his sentence. And when the jailer, sin, begins to call him back, here's the reality, we don't have to go. He may try to grab a hold of our leg, but we can kick him back. The only power that sin has over the Christian is the power of bluff, the power of deceit. Sin wants you to believe it has authority over you. Sin wants you to believe that you are enslaved to it, that you cannot get free, but the gospel of Jesus Christ declares a new and profound truth. In the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, sin has been dealt its death blow. It's been put to death. It's been defeated in Jesus Christ. The believer has died with Christ and has been freed from sin. We are not free from sin's ability to tempt us, but we are free from its power to both kill us and enslave us. We are under a new authority, under the rule and reign of a new master, under the lordship of Jesus Christ, the defeater of sin and death. Secondly, this newness of life provides us with our new ability. In verses 8 through 10, we see this. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. This is not just a future reality. This is a present reality. This is speaking of a walk with Him in intimacy and communion and fellowship and ever-increasing victory over sin. We know, he says, that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. Christ himself conquered sin through the resurrection. This is hugely important for us to understand. What does it mean that Christ died to sin? He had no sin. He didn't die for any sin that he committed. It means that when Christ came, he subjected himself to weakness and death, which is the penalty for our sin. The reason he died was because he took upon himself what we deserved. He subjected himself to the power of sin. He came under, in a sense, the power of sin and death, though he himself was sinless and never faltered, not even once. He paid our price. But the gospel of Jesus Christ reminds us that our Savior is not dead. He is alive. It demonstrates his defeat of sin, the resurrection does, vindication that he was indeed sinless, that the price he paid, he paid in full, that God the Father accepted the payment for our sin that releases us from bondage to sin. Resurrection power, according to verse 9, is, listen, undefeatable. Did you catch that? It is undefeatable. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. He put death to death. He crushed the power of sin. It will never again deal a death blow to our risen and living Savior, Jesus Christ. That gives hope for all of those who are in Christ Jesus. It is the dominion over death and therefore over the power of sin. Look at verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. All those who come to Jesus 
He takes his death and he takes his resurrection and he applies it to you. He calls you into a relationship in Christ, into union with him. He defeats death for you, the tyranny of death, no longer a reality for you. Yes, we're going to meet physical death, but we know this. We will be raised to physical life. And though we die, our soul shall live instantly in the presence of our Savior. Jesus overcame the mastery of death because when he died and rose, he broke the power of sin once and for all. You see what Paul says here? The power of sin is broken. We no longer have to obey it. We no longer have to submit it. We have been given a new ability because of our new reality in Christ. As Christ did not serve sin, here's the the response for us, neither should we. This is the mark of this newness of life, a life infused with resurrection power, a new ability to say no to sin and yes to Christ. Paul would write in Ephesians 1, verse 19, describing this power. He would say, what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, this is the power that is afforded to us. This is the power that has freed us from sin's demands, freed us to truly live in obedience to Christ Jesus. Continue in sin that grace might increase? Impossible. It is impossible to continue living unchanged when you become a Christian. In fact, I will put it even stronger than that. Those who try to argue that grace promotes sin, that their sin will ultimately glorify God in any way, listen, are revealing that they are not under grace. They're not Christians no matter how much they argue otherwise. Because you see, when you're united to Christ in His victory over sin, it makes your victory over sin not just possible, but inevitable. Because the power of the gospel is stronger than the power of sin and death. Yes, you will have lapses. Yes, you will have failures and discouragements along the way because the presence of sin remains and it will one day be fully eradicated. But you will not. You will not fall away. You will confess and repent regularly. You will cling to Christ again and again and you will run to Christ over and over to be washed and refreshed in the abundance of grace that is poured out to you. Sin will not have dominion over you. Here's the reality check. You are in Christ. That is who you are, a full participant in His death, burial, and resurrection, knowing the full power of that resurrection. Therefore, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. Let's pray. Father, we praise You. We praise you for what you have done in the cross and what you and you alone could do on our behalf. We praise you that, Lord, you saw us in the reality of our sin, under sin's authority and power, under the rule and reign of sin, and knowing, God, that there was nothing we could do to break that rule and reign. And so, Father, you sent your one and only Son to break it on our behalf, to pay sin's penalty in death on a cross.
to declare victory over sin and the resurrection from the dead, to offer newness of life with a new authority under your rule and your reign and a new ability with resurrection power, you in us, making us inevitably more like our Savior Jesus Christ. We pray for that, Lord. We pray that these truths would sink deep into our hearts, that we would truly know them, that we would believe that the power in us is stronger, it is greater, it is mightier than any power of sin and death. Give us hope in this truth. Help our hearts to celebrate this truth, to declare this truth, to rejoice in this truth, to love this truth. Do this now. Receive our praise, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.